my point is everybody's different, right? So for instance, what I'm saying may work for me and my personality, but may not work for somebody else because they have a different background. So you kind of have to take bits and pieces from different people and figure it out. Hi, you're listening to That Really Happened, Unbelievable Real Estate Stories. I'm your host, Ellie Perlman. If you're a real estate investor, this is the podcast for you. Our guest speakers will bring you amazing, intriguing, and unbelievable stories about real estate investing. The stories will be an honest and transparent account about what it actually means to invest in real estate. You'll hear stories that investors don't usually share. Stories about hardships, breaking points, painful truths, and surprising realizations. Sometimes there's a happy ending, and sometimes the story ends very differently than you would expect. So let's get the show started. Hi guys, welcome to That Really Happened. I'm Ellie Perlman, your host, broadcasting from sunny California. When I'm not behind the mic, I buy multifamily properties with passive investors who partner with me on my deals. So if you enjoy the podcast, please take a minute to rate us. You can find all of our social media links and the show notes on my website, www.elliperlman.com. Now, before we start the show today, I wanted to invite you to uh, an event that I'm speaking at called Raising Money Summit. It's going to be in Denver between October 3rd and 5th, and I'm going to be there talking about how to raise capital. So you can use the promo code Ellie to get 25% off during the month of July. This event is really great because it's going to teach you everything you need to know about raising capital. You'll learn the real secrets behind raising millions of dollars. You'll take away tactical strategies so you can go out and close more deals in less time. You'll discover the proven methods professionals use to create win-win deals and partnerships. And you'll be able to stop worrying about how you're going to fund your next real estate deal. So don't miss this premium conference where you can learn the skills you need to dominate in any niche of real estate. So again, you can use the promo code Ellie, that's E-L-L-I-E, that's my name, to get 25% off during the month of July. And you can go to www.raisingmoneysummit.com to get your ticket. Okay, so let's get the show started. Today, our guest is Omar Khan. So Omar is a chartered financial analyst with Boardwalk Wealth, a private equity firm located in in Dallas, Texas. Omar has 10 years of investing across real estate and commodities. He has $3.7 billion in capital financing and M&A transactions. He syndicated large multi-million dollar deals across the U.S., He advises high net worth individuals and entrepreneurs on real estate portfolio allocations. And he's a global citizen. He lived in Dubai, Toronto, and Dallas. So today, Omar will share with us his experience of scaling up quickly after coming to the U.S., with no social network. He will explain how he used a combination of grit, social media, and professional expertise to leverage himself into a new business. Hey, Omar, it's really great to have you today on the show. Hey, Ellie, how are you? Great to catch up again. So, Omar, why don't you take the lead and tell us your story, maybe starting with where you were born. I was born in Dubai. I lived for a good portion of my life in Pakistan as well. and But my family is basically all over the world. They live, I mean, look, right now my sister lives in the Silicon Valley, my brother's in Australia, and my parents kind of commute, well, I guess, wherever they wanted to go. So, 
Well, to cut a long story short, look, I live in Pakistan and Dubai, but growing up, we were traveling all the time, just due to the nature of my dad's business. Plus, you know, we have just friends all over the place. My family is uh, entrepreneurial, fairly financially sophisticated. So just growing up, just, you know, you kind of hear a lot of these uh, conversations that, I mean, now I find out and what a privileged position I'm in right now, now that I go out, I've gone out into the world and seen. But growing up, a lot of these conversations about, you know, for instance, we have a big real estate portfolio as part of our family, just, you know, making sure you go, to, how do you go talk to the bankers and lenders and, you know, then how do you stop doing that? And then you got to go to the ground level and start talking to a GC at the GC's level, right? Those sort of small little things that you learn through the process of osmosis. So I went to University of Toronto, did my undergrad there, got a really nice job. I was rather, I was offered a few jobs, but it was a 2008 crisis. All the jobs in PwC and the big firms were kind of rescinded very politely. But then Royal Bank of Canada did me a favor. One of my seniors who, really weird story, his frat brother's dad was the MD at RBC. So he kind of arranged for an interview. I got a job where basically in 2008, nobody was getting a job, right? And I started working and then, you know, one thing leads to another and you keep working hard, more and more doors keep opening and here I am. And when was it exactly that you moved to the U.S.? About three years ago, right? about three years ago. So it's 2019, yeah, 2016. Got it. Interesting. And you came directly to Dallas? Oh, yeah. Actually, what was happening is that I was getting married at the time and my wife was finishing up a residency in upstate New York. She's a physician. And we were debating, you know, whether she should come up to Canada, because I was living in Calgary at the time, working in oil and gas M&A, or, you know, should I come down? How should we kind of do it? And basically, we got a long story short, it was going, I mean, it was going to be such a pain for her to move up because she'd have to do everything again. She was right about done with her residency and her medical. She's about, I mean, she's about, she was a practicing doctor, but then she'd really be a practicing doctor, right? So I decided, you know, with uh, my background, skill set, and where I was at life, It'd be somewhat easier for me to move down. It's, it's more of a seamless transition for me. But then we decided, okay, I, we both decided, I am not going to move to a cold place again. Okay, no way. I'm going to move somewhere really, really, really warm. So really the three places uh, that I at least thought presumably in my head were Southern California, but that was out. I love Southern California. I think it's fantastic. I love California. I cannot agree more. I, it's, it's heaven, right? But I'm not a billionaire yet. So that was kind of out of the picture right? Then Florida. I love Florida to invest. We got a property there, but yeah, I wasn't really too sold on Florida as, uh, you know, I don't know why. I just obviously look deeper into it. And then it was Texas and working in oil and gas. I mean, I just had a lot of Texans counterparts and I'd always enjoyed that. I mean, I think I like the myth of Texas more because I'd never been to Texas. I just like the whole rugged individualism and capitalism and all that kind of stuff. So I decided to come down here. I went to Houston, Dallas, interviewed at a few places, met a few people, had some coffees, and then we chose Dallas and we've never looked back. We love Dallas. I think it's a fantastic place. It's one of the best decisions we ever made. Yeah. And Dallas has grown so fast. So many people are moving to Dallas every year and there's employers that are moving there every year. And this market is just booming right now. No, it's yeah, that too. I mean, that's from a growth perspective. I just feel from a livability perspective still. Dallas is a very big city, relatively speaking. But I mean, looks like unlike, say, Houston, it doesn't take me three hours to get somewhere. Right? I mean, in Dallas, I can still kind of get to most places in half an hour, 45 minutes. And I know people in Dallas complain about the traffic who lived there for 30 years. But I can assure you, for big city, Dallas traffic is very nice. So you recently moved to the U.S. You don't know anybody. You basically started from zero. 
and now you're moving to a new country, basically. So walk me through what was going on in the back of your mind when you were making that shift, that change, basically. Well, look at, well, I wasn't, I hadn't obviously thought all of this through, I'm going to be honest with you. So first of all, look what had happened is we moved down here, we started looking around and basically coincidentally at that time, one of my really oldest friends from Toronto, his family is an entrepreneurial family, but they own a huge office portfolio in Houston. And what is happening is now that mom and dad are older, they were divorced also, and one of the sisters lives, one place, one sister lives in Europe, one sister lives in Asia, this guy's in Canada. So the kids all want their piece of the inheritance, right? So basically, I ha- and they're really good family friends of ours as well. So I helped them restructure their portfolio. They were they sold some, then the guy kept what he wanted, but he cashed out his sisters because they just wanted a cash payment, right? But this way, I kind of helped them do that. And in the process of doing that between Houston and Dallas, I just started talking to people. And to be honest with you, I did feel not being from Dallas or say Texas or America, for instance, in some cases is a disadvantage, right? You don't have a network and you don't have all those things to fall back onto. But I think in a lot of cases, it's actually an advantage because you don't have any bad habits because you, you're not hanging out with the same people you've hung out for 10, 12 years. You know, you just realize, I mean, I just got to go out and do something, right? And I think it's a very typical entrepreneurial story, but I think it's a very typical immigrant entrepreneurial story as well, that look, we've known throughout American history, Jewish people have come, Irish people have come, Asian people have come, Indians have come, Russians have come. I mean, you name it, right? People have come. And it's actually turned out to be a big advantage because a lot of things that hold people back, you get into bad habits, you know, all that stuff. You don't have time and luxury for that. There is time and luxury for that. And it turns out to be a really good place. And on top of that, if you're in a market like Texas, which weirdly, I think a lot of, I think Texas has done a really poor job in marketing itself for a place that that's, this is so good and so nice that I feel Texans have a very, this, the general attitude here is very entrepreneurial. They have a very good appetite for not just identifying the business proposition, but then investing in that business proposition. Right? And I think that's not the case everywhere else because the amount of doors, for instance, that have been opened for me, as an example, people's generosity, right? People have been generous to open doors. I don't think I could have done the exact, I could have done the exact same thing with the exact, or maybe double the amount of work. But if I was not in a place like Texas, I might not have received that level of traction that quickly. So I do think part of it is me, part of it is the fact that, look, I didn't have any bad habits to fall back onto. But I think part of this also goes to credit and a testament to the people that live in Texas that they are very entrepreneurial, there's a culture of just, just get it done, just get it done. And they're very able and open to back a new manager, or back a new uh, person, assuming, you know, you're not a complete moron, right? <laughs> I mean, you still kind of need to know what's going on. So I liked what you said earlier about the fact that there's an advantage of coming from a new place, coming basically from a new country, and you have, you know, different habits. You see the world pretty much differently than people around you. You're not used to do things the same way like everybody else. And it's very easy for you to go out of your comfort zone. Ellie, to be honest, I don't even think it's a comfort zone issue. My point is, if you want to do something, and for instance, you're new somewhere, well, it's not even a comfort zone issue. Well, you don't look at the bare minimum. I have to do like, say, three things. I'm just making up a number, right? So, you know, it's not even a comfort zone issue. It's just things you got to do. So it, it becomes a lot of times it becomes like a chore, like, hey, go do this, check it off, right? So whereas I think earlier, if you were stuck in your own life, in your own social circle, like, oh, do I really want to go meet this person? Do I really want, I don't really want to do 
goals, right? You just don't have, mentally, you're just not there. Mentally, you're not even saying, do I need to go do this? You're like, I need to go do this and I need to get it done. And that's it. There is no, hey, should I do this? Should I not do this sort of a conversation even happening in your head? Right. And there's a book called either How to Work Like an Immigrant or The Immigrant Mentality. And basically, this book teaches everybody how to think and operate like an immigrant. And that's basically, you know, not keep working hard, not stopping, how to build stamina, because immigrants, they don't have that luxury. That's, you know, they came to a certain country, they have to start from scratch. There's no, you know, they don't really, they can't really take their time of the day to think and process things. They just go out and do things and do stuff and make things happen. Immigrants are not afraid to try new things. They're not afraid of hard work. So walk me through what happened to you since you moved to Dallas, came to America, you moved to Dallas and started in real estate and basically to what happened from that point until that brought you to where you are today. Well, look, as you said, right there, it wasn't like I was starting fresh in the sense that, look, I worked on the institutional side. So I was already structuring deals that were at least a lot more complex than a typical standard syndication, right? Because the capital structure standard syndication is very simple. Usually, you know, it's just senior debt and equity, right? So I was doing way more structuring, way more complex deals institutionally, and I was managing way more complex assets. So whereas, you know, presumably you could say I did get started, say, but a lot of the previous experiences that I had had built up to that level, right? So it wasn't like it was just a fresh slate. I was building on a set of experiences I already had, which basically allowed me to get a level of credibility very quickly from the word go, because I can tell you this, for instance, having worked in investment sales, having worked with and around investment bankers and private equity people, very quickly, for instance, when I'm talking to a broker as an example, right? I'm just giving you this very small example. When I'm talking to a broker, very quickly, I can even sniff out, well, how many deals does this guy usually do? Where is he on the totem pole? And how much power does he really have to affect the decision? And I can tell you this, that, again, it sounds like you're doing it naturally, but you're not because you've been in an investment sales capital markets type environment, right? And which what was very surprising to me is when I moved down here, first of all, I didn't even know about this whole mentorship concept and how people had made brokers out into be like this dragon that oh my God, they're talking to you. This must be such a huge freaking deal. Because I never kind of had that. I was like, yeah, the guy's trying to sell me a deal. I'm trying to buy it. What's the big deal? And he's trying to not not talk to me. He just wants to, he or she just wants to, you know, allocate their time efficiently, right? So when you start understanding how people work, how they operate, what are they looking for and what am I looking for? And then if you're able to talk their language, right? It's a bit like, for instance, you know, you're from Israel, right? Now, if I go to Israel, presumably I will have it. It's not an advantage. At least it'll be very easy for me if I speak Hebrew, even though I know a lot of Israelis speak English, but it just helps, right? If I speak Hebrew and I speak some Arabic, it's just going to facilitate a lot more conversations. I mean, that's just the way it is. If I go to Spain and I don't know how to speak Spanish, it's going to be a little difficult. I mean, that's reality. That's You can't escape that thing. That's nothing somebody's not been rude to you. That's reality. So because I could speak a lot of their languages, it became very easy to A, develop credibility very quickly. And the other thing which I kind of stumbled on, this wasn't by design, was that what I realized was that a lot of folks who are entrepreneurial, they never really have the institutional level of sophistication because they've never really had to do it because sitting and working in an office is actually stifling for that person, right? Because it just the creativity portion of that entrepreneur just isn't appreciated in office. But a lot of folks who work institutionally, right, they might have a lot of sophistication, but they don't basically, for the lack of a better word, excuse my language, they don't put their balls on the line like an entrepreneur does. 
every single day an entrepreneur is a lot of times literally the entrepreneur is rolling the dice a lot of times and yeah he or she you we look we only hear about the ones that have made it right billionaires millionaires but for every one guy who's made it or one girl who's made it there's like countless people who never made it who rolled the dice and nothing ever happened and even those who made it they failed so many times everyone worked super hard they failed over and over again until you know they've succeeded and we we rarely hear about the failure stories all we hear is about the glorious you know success amazing success stories and it looks like it, people were are successful overnight but that's because nobody is really looking into the years before they've succeeded I mean how many you know how much they push through how many failures they had to power through nobody's talking about that not a lot of people have the ability or the courage to roll the dice that way what I coincidentally stumbled into was the fact that a lot of entrepreneurs didn't have the sophistication of an institutional person but a lot of the institutional guys didn't have the just the can-do attitude of an entrepreneur and I was kind of in this little hybrid middle spot where I could communicate with entrepreneurs because my family is very entrepreneurial I'd worked on the institutional side so I kind of got the pain that a lot of these guys go through right and the sheer frustration of just slaving away a chain to your desk which I was by the way for most of my point so that kind of put me in a nice little hybrid spot where I could weirdly again this wasn't by design this is sheer accident by the way and that allowed me to communicate very quickly with two distinct set of people so that allowed me to get a lot of traction very quickly Omar, how do you raise money? How did you raise money from investors coming to a new country and knowing nobody and having no network? How do you do that? I mean, I think it's very interesting. Three years ago, you weren't even in this country. And now you have investors and high net worth individuals that are trusting you with their money. How did you do that? Well, Ali, number one, I think, I'm, first of all, a lot of this is not by design. A lot of this is trial and error. So let's just be very honest, right? A lot of this is You do one thing, you're like, oh, that, I shouldn't really have done it that way. So you iterate, iterate. So that being said, look, I think the other deal also is that unlike a lot of people, well, I actually have a license to use. So if I'm unethical, if I don't do my fiduciary responsibility, I will lose my license to CFA charter. So unlike some random guy who was maybe a high school music teacher and now he's decided to raise money because he's thinking positively because his coach told him, I actually have a background in this. So I can put my money where my mouth is. That's why, number one. Number two, if, for instance, I sit down with an investor, now they may, they or may not choose to invest in me, which is totally fine, and I completely respect that, right? But they do know that, unlike the vast majority of people here on podcasts, I actually have a track record I can do. I can actually sit down with their banker, with their CPA, with their lawyer, and I can go line item by line item, because I've done this for a living. So they know, for instance, that not only... Am I talking the talk? I can actually walk the walk because there's lots of investors, for instance. When you connect with them, they're like, I want to talk to my lawyer. Be like, that's great. Why don't you connect me to your lawyer? I can sit down with their lawyer. In 15 minutes, I can tell them, okay, this, this, this is the clause you're looking at. If you have a concern about this clause, this is the issue. So when you have, and of course, you're improving yourself over a period of time, right? You're, you're, nobody ever knows everything, right? And you're iterating all the time. But I feel a lot of investors get comfort in the idea that I'm not some random guy who took some random coaching and mentoring program and randomly decided to take a pivot in life, right? A lot of this is based on my professional expertise and, you know, career and experiences. And the example I give is, look, my wife's a physician, right? She's a pediatrician. She's one of the smartest people I know. 
But for instance, if I have a problem with my knee because I'm getting older, right? I don't go to my wife, right? That doesn't mean she's stupid because I am still going to a doctor. It just means she's not trained to do that thing. So whereas there is a level of marketing involved, obviously, you know, all of this is marketing at the end of the day. At the end of the day, you can't just talk the talk. Eventually, somebody has to go do the work. And I think in my particular case, people have at least, that's what they've told me at least, is that they've taken heart from the fact that I am the one who knows how the work is done. Now, obviously, I'm not the only one in the country. There's lots of other people, like you are one of the people. But in my particular case, people know that this isn't just heart air. These aren't like positive thinking mantras that I read on the internet. There is a track record on which I can lean on. I actually have licenses to lose. So I have a lot banking on everything that I do. This isn't like, oh, I'm going to try doing this now in my life. Now I'm going to try it. I'm not a dabbler is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, and I think even if you don't have the experience, but you partner with someone who does, then you're basically saying, listen, I don't know everything, but I'm partnering with someone who does, who has the experience, who knows real estate, who has been doing it for years. And that's how you can basically build credibility. And also, you know, being positive is, is huge. I'm actually a huge believer in mindset and positive thinking. It has been working for me. So I believe that you do need, the, you need it in every business, in every venture in your life in order to succeed. It's not 100% of success, but it's definitely a big part of it. But if you go back to, you know, the topic of how basically when you're just starting out and you don't have experience, you can always partner with someone who can. And maybe it's not that easy to find that partner, but you can always find the thing that you can bring to the table, how to add value to that more experienced investor. You can either bring capital, you can either bring the deal, you can do many things. But I think my point is everybody's different, right? So for instance, what I'm saying may work for me and my personality but may not work for somebody else because they have a different background. So you kind of have to take bits and pieces from different people and figure it out. So Omar, let me ask you this. What do you do on social media and maybe on other platforms and other tactics that you use to be visible to investors so they actually know who you are and know about the, the deals that you're involved with? Okay, so a lot of people think I have a huge marketing team behind me and I'm going to hear you dispel this rumor. I don't. So I basically decided a few years ago, or not a few years ago, that I don't like to do more work than is necessary, right? So what I'm going to do is appear on really successful people's podcasts like Ellie's, right? And have them make me famous. That is my strategy. And I'm just being super honest with you. Because, I mean, it looks like I'm on social media, but to be honest with you, you're the one. I'm on your platform, not the other way around. You are the content creator and you are the kingmaker. I am merely a person who's here to have an interesting chat and hopefully contribute. Interesting. So that's your strategy. You are using social media, but you're using it in the way that will allow you enough time to focus on finding the next deal. And you know what? I like that because you're not trying to do everything. You know what areas you're strong at, and this is where you put most of your time and efforts. And other areas, you just find a way to, to tap into other you know, investors or people's channels and do it that way. So you allocate your time in a smart way. Yeah. And look, my point is, like I said, every, we all have different sort of uh, capabilities. And maybe my capability might not be to be running a huge marketing machine. So I have to rely on people whose actual strengths are to run a huge marketing machine. 
but their actual strengths may not be to actually run the asset and talk to the brokers and negotiate with the lenders because we all have our unique set of abilities, right? So, Omar, where are you heading next? So, you recently closed the deal in Jacksonville. Tell us about this deal. Well, Jacksonville has been a market that was uh, on our radar for a long time. We basically were very selective. We actually toured uh, Jacksonville multiple times, visited properties. And over a six, eight, ten months period, developed our idea was to develop relationships with the big brokers of the market. Once we had done that, then we decided, okay, once we have a feel for the place, then we can actually heavily move into that place. And that's kind of what we try to do with all the markets we're in. And that's really, that's what had happened because we had specifically chosen three sub-markets. It was the San Jose and San Marco area. But the beach is kind of like our third option. It's a really nice area, but it's expensive. And then in and around Orange Park and maybe Mandarin, right, right, right across the river. And we've chosen those. Yeah, I mean, look, that's what we've chosen for ourselves. I mean, I know people have bought everywhere else and they've made a lot of money, but that's what we chose for ourselves. So what happens over a period of, say, six, eight months of just doing research, actually physically visiting properties, touring with brokers, what happens is you start getting, you start realizing that in most of these markets, there's only a finite amount of assets, right? I mean, it's not like Orange Park has... 10 million apartment buildings, right? I mean, there's really only like 50, and out of them, maybe only like 30 fit your little investment right here, right? So by the time you, you've actually took, taken a deep dive in two or three that have come to the market, you, you should have presumably seen, or at least researched to a fair degree, all the comps around it, right? Which basically means that the next time some property is coming, you're building on your knowledge, right? It's not like you're starting from scratch. So what this meant is that when the Lakewood Oaks team came to the market, we actually, that was one of our preferred submarkets. We'd actually done all the comp analysis and all of that before for earlier deals. So we were able to move very quickly. And because we had a good relationship with the broker and, by the way, the seller that owns it, it really facilitated and expedited the conversation. Now, could we have done it the other way? Yeah, we could have. But to be honest with you, we're very opportunistic. So for us, it was no use in just coming in rah, 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 like into a market and just like throwing money in, right? So that's the path we took. And it really helped us out that because we were very selective, we were opportunistic, we could basically do things at our pace, right? Then you're not hassled to do something just because somebody else is. And then on top of that, Jacksonville's a great market. I don't have to advertise that. You know it. So, you know, when you're in a great market and when you're in a growing sub-market, a lot of, uh, you know, growth cures all sins, right? If you're growing fast enough, pretty much a lot of your sins are cured. So that's kind of the market we wanted to be in. We wanted to be in an idiot-proof market, basically. Got it. And Jacksonville is still a market you're focused on? I mean, look, primarily, let's put it this way. If I had to devote 100% of my energy to Jacksonville, 90% would be to these three submarkets. Now, what this does, this has a nice, uh, nice side effect is that you don't chase your tail all the time, right? So every time a deal shows up in Jacksonville, you're just not chasing your tail, trying to just make the numbers work, right? Because not interested... And I'm sure, I'm not saying it's a bad deal. I'm just saying for us, because we have chosen to go down a certain path, then we have to maintain the discipline of going down that path. All right, fantastic. So Omar, thank you so much for being here today and sharing your story and insights with me and my listeners. And Omar, if someone wants to get in touch with you, where can they find you? Sure. So you can go to our webpage, boardwalkwealth.com. And right on the front page, it's very simple. Anybody can figure this out. Put your name. Put your email, see how you found out about us, which is basically through Ellie's podcast. Click the button right below it. It's that simple. Okay? Problem solved. If you want to reach out directly to me, you can email umar, O-M-A-R, at boardwalkwealth.com. And I hope everybody knows how to send an email. 
So you don't got to get into that. All right. Thank you, Omar. It was great having you on the show. Thank you, Ellie. Have a good one. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.